people, where are you going to get honest running shoe reviews? Certainly not in some running magazine. Where they're going to bow down to all the shoe companies to get them advertising. I'll tell you where you're going to get it. The new letsrun.com shoe site. Go to letsrun.com slash shoes today. Get the best shoe reviews in the world. Hey, and take time to review the shoe you're running in now to help other people. Thanks so much. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. The 2023 BMW Berlin Marathon is in the books, and for the second straight year, we have a world record. Except this time, it wasn't set by Elliot Kipchoge. Tixt Esefa skipped the 213s and 212s entirely by taking the women's world record from 214.04 all the way down to 211.53. How the hell did this happen? We'll try to make sense of it. Kipchoge was in Berlin as well. He won his second straight title and fifth overall in 202.42. That's the eighth fastest marathon of all time, but only the fifth fastest of Kipchoge's legendary career. The American men went for it in Berlin, but mostly came up short. None of them hit the Olympic standard. We'll see if any U.S. men can get it in Chicago two weeks from now. In non-marathon news, the Olympic trials are going back to Eugene fifth straight time in 2024. We break that down. Jakob Ingebrigtsen got married. The NCAA cross-country season is underway. Stanford men bombed their opener. Well, there are some promising rookies at Oklahoma State and New Mexico that we'll introduce you to, plus some major coaching shakeups in the sprint world. And Robert, I don't know if you were watching last night, Devin Allen made his NFL debut for the Philadelphia Eagles as a kick returner. I was very impressed. I was watching the Eagles against the Bucks. They say Devin Allen's back to return. I didn't think he'd ever make it to the active roster. Kudos to him for making it to the NFL and to playing some snaps last night on special teams. Congrats to Devin Allen. This is Jonathan Galt. I am joined by Robert Johnson, owner of some of the hottest takes in track and field. Rojo, how are you doing this week? I'm doing amazing on so many levels. First of all, this 211.53, like when I was running, I was basically as good as the best woman. So I, I'm now a 212 marathoner. I, I'm so excited to have gotten my PR down by over 10 minutes since I, when I retired. That's number one. I am happy for Devin Allen. He's a good dude. Congratulations. But as a Princeton alum, I'm a little bit upset. The best track and field athlete of recent years in the NFL is Andre Isovitz, the Princeton decathlete who has actually played snaps at wide receiver this year, was actually drafted by Cincinnati. I don't think he's made a catch yet, but this kid, this kid could easily be in the Olympics in the decathlon. What a sick 10 Wait, what, what are you You're trying to argue he was better at track than Devin Allen, the guy who was fifth in the Olympic Games? Come on, Robert. Well, he's the better football player because he's in. he was drafted and he's actually playing wide receiver. I meant he's the better. Okay, fine. The sum of the parts, yeah. I mean, they, well, I don't know if you saw this, Robert, in the Dolphins game. 70 to 20 over the Broncos. A guy called Devin Achan scored four touchdowns and he was a track star at Texas A&M. They've got Tyreek Hill already on the Dolphins. This guy ran 10.14 for the hundred and made NCAAs for Texas A&M. And now he's a star scoring four touchdowns in his rookie season. So 
They've got some track stars on that team. And Raheem Mostert, former Big Ten champion in the 100 at Purdue. I mean, that's that's if you're a track fan and you're looking for an NFL team to root for, I mean, I am a Patriots fan. I'm biased, but Miami's got the most track speed on that team. Definitely. Somebody put out a tweet on on a tweet. Can you still call it a tweet on X? Someone put out a tweet on X. I'm not going to call it an X, so I'm still going to call it a tweet. About their, how sick the four by one team at, at, at Miami Dolphins would be. And they listen to PBs of everybody. Anyways, I'm, I'm also very excited that Welton Johnson will not be here. He said he was going on vacation last week. And that's true. He is on vacation with his lovely wife, who is ending up her maternity leave. She deserves it. But if Weldon wasn't on vacation, I think he would have had to have been suspended for the week as punishment. As a parent, it's tough. You got to parent, you got to punish people you love, and as a brother, you have to punish people you love. We apologize for the audio problems. Weldon is always from last week's show. Like Weldon's always changing the software and doing this so he can video edit this. But I don't know. There was a he did something to his software and it like made him sound like a robot last week. It was driving me nuts when I was trying to listen to the pod. So he's not here. So we need to hear from you. We need another voice. Give us a call. 844-LET'S-RUN. Unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, we want to hear from you. 844-538-7786. But let's start with Berlin, John. And you're the, I always say you're the hardest working man in track and field. And that's true because you got up at 3 a.m. Actually, you probably got up before 3. John, did you wake up to see the actual gun go off or did you wake up around halfway? I did. I set the alarm to 310. And I had it on the TV. I saw the gun go off in Berlin. I mean, the way I think about it, Robert, is Kipchoge. We only get to see him two times a year. If I have to wake up at 310 once per year to see Kipchoge race, I'm going to do it. I don't know how much longer he's going to be around for. We've never seen anything like him. So it was a worthwhile trade-off. I woke up at 310. Could I have woken up an hour later and still kind of got the gist of everything that happened. Yeah, pretty much. But you see those crazy early splits and 310 versus 410 doesn't really make that much of a difference. Not really. The one thing I would say, Flowtrack had the US rights, but they weren't using the commentary. There was a world feed. Tim Hutchings and Chris Dennis were doing the commentary. Makes the race so much better when they're talking. Flowtrack wasn't using that. So I had to actually, I, it was on Flowtrack, and then I kind of pulled up a YouTube stream that had Chris Dennis and Tim Hutchings on it instead. So was there any commentary at all on Flowtrack? No. It was just silent. Well, I think you got some maybe sound effects of them stepping on the, the pavement. See, or that folks, sort of this thing, is but. why, I mean, no offense, you may not want to be paying for that service. Do you need a VPN? You probably do. Use the VPN that we use at Let's Run. Go to letsrun.com slash VPN. You can change your IP address. You can get the World Athletics feed for most of these meets, et cetera. So, yeah, enough patting myself on the back at waking up early to do my job. Like, I am being paid to do this, let's not forget. But, Robert, I want to get your reaction. I saw this unfold in real time. So, by the time Tigas Decefa, and I think it's, I don't know if it's Tigas or Tigas, her name was Tigas Decefa with two eyes until like a day before the race. And then suddenly she's being referred to as Tigas in all their materials. And her birth year has gone from 1994 to 1996. We've complained about this before in the past, how athletes will just change their names or have their names reported differently midway through their career. As a fan of the sport, it's very frustrating. So anyway, it, her agent, Johnny Demadonna, says it's Teagst, T-I-G-S-T. I think it's just easier if we call her a Sefa, but I saw this unfolding. She goes out in 66-20. I was like, oh, she's probably going to blow up, but she didn't blow up. She actually got even faster and goes through 
the second half, 65-33. Big negative split. But Robert, when you see this time, 2-11-53, Tiggs to Cepho, what do you think? That's what I wanted to get at. So I woke up and I thought, how do I want to get the results? Do I want to try to go to the thread and read through page after page? See how it's like unfolding, kind of, you know, be excited or just go straight to the homepage and see what happened. And I decided to go straight to the homepage and I was trying to, but I, I tried to make myself in my head think, okay, what I really think happened. I mean, on the Friday Supporters Cup show, I think I said I thought Kipchoge was going to lose. Did I say that? Or did I can't remember. I made some analogy to my wife having a big birthday on Sunday and Kip, Father Time's undefeated, but I can't remember who I picked. But I remember thinking, okay, what happened to Kipchoge? I wasn't even thinking about the women's race. And my ultimate conclusion with Kipchoge was, I think that the odds that he got beat and bombed in this race are about the same that he also broke the world record. And I was going to say about 20% for each. So that he's done 20% and still running faster than ever. And then I'm like, okay, screw it, go to the homepage. And then I, I click on it, and there's a splash page up, and I see 211.53. And the first thought that went through my head is, wow, he really bombed that damn race. But then I thought, but Jonathan Galt, why in the hell would he be mocking? Why is he mocking Kipchoge? Like, this is all in a split second. Then I'm like, holy shit, that must be a woman's time. And John Kellogg had a similar reaction. He told me he was on Facebook and he actually saw something come up on, on former Steeplechase American record holder George Malley's page, 21153. And he thought, wow, did some American man debut at 21153? He said, wait, that's a woman. What, what's going on? Like, it was just. Wow. It was amazing. And then I pulled up your article, your recap of the race, and I thought it was honestly brilliant. I thought this is the best of what's run. We debate in this day and age when you can watch races, see races, get highlights. Do we need to spend tons of time writing definitive recaps of races? And this, this just reminded me, yes, we do. Like it was wonderful writing, John, full of great detail. All right, that's enough, Brace. Thank you. Thank no, you. Appreciate, as, it. appreciate it, Robert. But but as you wrote, the numbers are hard to comprehend. A Sefer ran her first half in Berlin in 66-20, more than a minute ahead of world record pace, and picked it up over the second half. She ran her second half in 65-33, which would have been the world record in that women's half marathon as recently as a decade ago. It then This is the part that I loved. It used to be significant when a woman dropped a 501 mile in the middle of a marathon. Asefa averaged 501 mile pace for the full 26.2 distance. Yeah. It's three days later, two days later. I still can't wrap my head around this. I just, in the year 2023, we're not supposed to be able to take more than two minutes off the marathon world record. Like these people have been running this event for long enough that these sort of breakthroughs should not be possible. Now, we, we did see this crazy 2022 season, right, where Acefa runs 215.37 in Berlin, and then it's followed up with 214.18 or 214.18 by Ruth Chepengedich in Chicago, and then 214.58 by Amane Bariso in Valencia. And we're thinking, okay, the rest of the world have caught, have caught up to that world record by Kosge in 2019, which was a big outlier at the time. That one itself took more than a minute off Paula Radcliffe's record. Now it's like, okay, people have been in the shoes for a while. That's kind of what I thought had led to that you know, recalibrating last year. 
But I thought it might be, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a world record this year. Like I said before, Valencia, it wouldn't have been crazy to say Latessa Betguide could run 212 or 213 with her PBs and other distances. Why I didn't expect is that we would get this massive chunk taken off all at once. And I didn't think it would come from Tigas de Sefa, who 18 months ago had never even run a marathon. And now she's the fastest woman in history by more than two minutes. That is what I can't comprehend is one that the breakthrough was so big. It all came at once. And two, that it came from a woman who was an 800 meter Olympian in 2016. It's wild. It really is. So her birthday is now what, John? I'm working on until it stops. It says she's 29. Yeah. Her world athletics profile underwent some revisions, maybe on Sunday. I don't know. Very recently. Because she's now listed as Tisa Sefer and her birthday, which was December 3rd, 1994, is now listed as December 3rd, 1996. I would like an explanation for that. And look, let's don't lie. There's a lot of people just automatically accusing her of doping. I don't go there. I mean, I think you're as a fan, you, yes, I'm fine with you willing to contemplate that. We're obviously going to talk about this. But a few things. One, her coach, Gimadu Dedefo, has, as you said, has coached a lot of good people, right? He coached Mariso, who ran 214 last year in Valencia. Right. So she's run 214. He says, I coach a lot of ladies. Never have I coached an athlete like her. Tijis is the stronger one, is the strongest one. So he's saying she's significantly better than a 214.58 woman. Well, you know, that would be the case. And I, I he, he did say this before Bariso ran 214 for the record, but I, I still think you could say the sentiment might apply. Correct. And we thought G'day, but a 213 from her it would not have shocked me. 212 even? No, I guess. So 211 should make, you know, Paula Radcliffe back in the day without super shoes ran 215.25. And now the world record is 211.53. So what is that? That's three and a half minutes? Yeah. Oh, look at the men. And d- d- don't give me this Elliot Wilson Kip saying and Dennis Kometo times. Look at Elliot Kipchoge's PB before the super shoes. It was the same damn PB as Haile Gebrselesi's. What a human being could run on the men's side from a superstar talent was very well established to be right around 204 flat. And now it's 201 flat. Three minutes. So if you look at it that way, maybe we shouldn't be that shocked by this time. But... Well, also, Robert, look at what the women's half marathon world record is. That's 62.52. The 10K world record is 29.01. I think it could that could be lowered significantly if they attack it next year. The 5K world record is 14 flat. Um, I, I think maybe look at the the latter two, but is it that ridiculous to say a man with a 62.52 PB can also run a 2.11 high marathon? I know that a Sefer is not the woman who ran the 62.52, but if a woman is capable of running that, I don't think it's crazy to suggest a woman could run 2.11.53. It's still out there, though. Because I've got a chart in, in in my week that was, well, I haven't finished it yet, but, you know, the male-female gap between the world records, 1,500, so 11.2% slower. Steeplechase, 11%. 5,000, 11.2%. 10,000, 10.8%. Now, the longer you get, the lower it goes. Half marathon, 9.3% gap. But now, this this time, 8.86%. If, if if you go back and put it like at a 10% gap, the men's world record would be like, I think, 159 flat or something like that. Yeah. I, no, I mean, th- I mean, 
there is a strong case to be made. This is the greatest women's distance performance ever. You could argue it's the greatest women's athletics performance. I think the scoring tables, you know, there you've got those East German discus throwers from the 80s or whatever. But I think according to scoring tables, this is even better than Flojo's 10.49. I think this is now the strongest mark. Take those with a grain of salt. But the other, there's a few other things that we've got to address here. One, we're in a sort of transitional period with the super shoes. The record books, as we've seen, have essentially been torn up in almost every distance event. This year alone in the women's events, we've got a mile world record, a 1500 world record, two 5,000 meter world records, and now the marathon world record. I think it's. I think the women's 5K record is going to be broken again. I think the 10K record is going to be broken again. With st- you know, it's like a, you're taking a snow globe and shuffling up all the records, and we'll see where everything settles in a couple of years. There's just we don't have a past good past comparison because the shoes have so fundamentally changed the game and what athletes are capable of that we're still kind of discovering that. That said, I think it's very hard to say like where does this performance come from because even I was trying I threw out a few possible explanations. One. It could be the super shoes and it could be this new Adidas shoe, which uh, let me get the exact name of this thing because it's very long. It's the Adidas Adi Zero Adios Pro Evo One. Can we just call this like the magic or something? You know, give it a one word name. It doesn't need like five words, but this shoe. Seriously, whoever Adidas came up with that name should be fired right now on the spot. Like my dad always says, when you drive by on a billboard, do you know what the product is? Do you remember the name? Do you remember the website to go to the phone number? Like this, you're never going to remember the name. So whoever came up with that should be terminated today. They made a mistake, at least suspended. Thank you. Okay. This shoe is 138 grams. What does that mean? Well, it's 48% lighter than any of Adidas's other super shoes. It's also got this rocker in it, which apparently is, I've heard they've used rockers in other races, but Adidas is saying it's a, a first of its kind four foot yep. rocker. They're also, I, it's $500 and it's basically a single use marathon shoe. This, it's well, it's designed for one race. So I don't know if look, this thing is how much it's responsible for, but it could have been that shoe technology has taken another jump up with what she wore on Sunday. We'll, we'll find out pretty soon. No doubt. I wish that I had said them Friday because it did cross my mind. I wish I put out the shoe. What if it comes out, this Adidas shoe is better than the other shoe? And the only reason I thought that was like, why else would they be charging $500? Now, I think a, a couple of things here. One, and I've done a lot of research on this. I've reached out to the sports scientists, Ross Tucker and Jeff Burns about the shoes. I'm going to be sharing some of that with you now. One, too much is being made of the single-use shoe. Like, no pro wears a, mar- no, no pro wears a flat for more than one marathon anyways. So... That's pretty standard. Two, the weight is significant. It's really amazing. This, you know, you're talking about grams. I do ounces. 4.8 ounces here for the men's size nine. That, like, the Vaporfly is like 6.5 ounces. This shoe is amazing. Like, the old Nike Streak XC, which was a good, great marathon shoe, that's five and a half ounces. But that's just a, a, a thin racing flat. This is now a gigantic shoe that gives you way more cushioning. I mean, I've worn, you know, I've worn the Vaporfly's, I've never worn this. It feels like you're on springs. It gives you way more cushioning than your everyday trainer and is lighter than the old school racing flats. It's mind-boggling that this could even exist. But, and, and you know, I think I've said this story before. Back when I was racing, I used to race in the lightest shoe ever. And I remember thinking, like, 
the last marathon I ran, I'm like, never again am I going to wear this shoe this small. It's too light. My quads are trash. I'd rather have something more substantive on my shoe to protect me and carry the extra weight. And one way to think about these efficiency gains is, um, well, first of all, just in general, the super shoes, you know, um, I'm not talking about the weight here. I'm just talking about like the 4% gain that the Vaporfly gave you over the old racing flats. Um, Jeff Burns said it's generally like for every 100 grams in weight is a 1% gain. So it would be the equivalent basically of the super shoes are the equivalent of taking a pound off of weight of your, of your old shoe, I mean, which would be impossible because the shoes don't weigh a pound. So the, basically the gains you're getting, would be, or if you're talking about a punishment, like imagine taking your racing flat and adding a pound to that. That's how much worse off you are just with the old shoes. If you were racing in a normal racing shoe versus running in the super shoe. Well, I understand why it's a pound when you're not taking a pound off. The 4% gain that you're getting in efficiency. One way to, to contemplate that is to think of that as just, it's the same as just adding a pound to your shoes. Well, because because you're getting the spring plate and the, and the foam rocker and everything. I'm talking about the Vaporfly. I'm not talking about the new shoe. Okay. Just in general. Now, with this shoe, the weight is not enough to explain, you know, two or three minutes. The weight's probably, it's like a 1%. I mean, it's like half percent gain in running economy, which isn't, then you get two thirds of that in time. You're roughly looking at like 20 to 30 seconds. And then, you know, Jeff Burns is like, but there's a rocker and this and that. This shoe is probably not, though, way better than, you know, like it's not probably like 4% better than the, than the Vaporfly, which would be two or you know, a couple minutes. It's probably like 20 seconds better on the weight alone and then maybe a little bit more for the rocker and then something else he was saying. Again, I will probably publish all of his, their emails to me. So I would say less than a minute. That makes sense but to still, me because it's people, significant. Look, yeah, people have been looking and trying to figure out this technology and improve on this technology ever since Nike came out with the original Vaporfly. The idea that we could, you've got the smartest minds in running shoes all tackling this problem. And it's kind of crazy. You would think that one company would be able to make something that's just two minutes better at this point. But yeah, maybe it is another advancement. So that, that could explain some of the time, right? Yeah. But Ross Tucker was just really anti-shoes when i when i reached out to him this is science and sports podcast from south africa and i think i'm going to use this as the quote of the day for tomorrow he just hates the shoes I'm trying to actually find the real quote here the implications that you can his biggest complaint is that like people respond so differently to the shoes you don't even know like one shoe might be better but then you respond worse to it than an average person etc the implication is that you can find two athletes who have the same running economy when wearing different shoes, but they're four to six percent apart using another shoe combination. If you randomize the shoes, you would change the outcome of the race. Why does this matter? I think it matters because some people in this debate have said that we can't explain a selfish performance using the shoes because Bridget Koskai also had super shoes. And I'm, what I'm saying is, so what? The difference between shoes is so enormous that it could easily still be the sole explanation for her performance. If Asapa happens to be the athlete on one extreme end of the response curve and Coast Guy is somewhere near the average, and of course Paul Ratcliffe didn't even have them at all. So you could be looking at three quite similar performances from Ratcliffe, Coast Guy, and Asapa down to similar physiology, but then with very different time outcomes because the three athletes lie at different points on the non-user, medium responder, and super responder continuum. The point is, we just don't know, and the evidence that does exist 
albeit non-athletes, shows us there's a range of responses that is comfortably 6% and maybe even as large as 11%. I don't need to tell you the implications of one athlete getting 2% and the other 4% benefit. Okay. Very interesting point there. I don't want to dwell too much on the shoes. It feels like I've been talking about them for 10%. Sorry, for 10 minutes now. But that is an interesting point that some people are super responders. Some people don't respond as much. I think everyone does get some benefit from it. But Robert, okay. final point on the shoes? shoes before we move on? No, not shoes. Just final point in Berlin here. Oh, no. I, I got more than that because oh, okay. I wrote in the article... Look, shoes could be one possible explanation, but I'm trying to figure out how do we get here? How do we get Tigas to suffer breaking the world record by two minutes? Shoes is one possible thing. The other thing, her backstory, I guess interesting is the word for it. This is not the kind of woman you would expect to be breaking the world record. She was not a road racer until 2018. And according to her agent, Johnny Demadonna, she moved up from the track to the roads, 2017, 2018. She was dealing with Achilles injuries. It was difficult for her to race in spikes. That's why she starts doing road races. But then she's okay. She runs 68-24 in the half in 2019. She doesn't race at all in 2021. Sorry, in 2020 or 2021. And I think that's going to be a huge red flag for some people is, wait, she went two full years without doing any races at all. And John, ex- uh, two things. One is called a global pandemic. And she's not good enough really to get in big races. She has no, no resume. And two, maybe she had a baby. I don't know about the baby thing, but oh, no, the, the, the explanation given by her camp is that there weren't many races in 2020. And it was also, it wasn't just that she couldn't get into races because the ones that were being held were small fields and she didn't have the resume at that point, but also that it was difficult for her to get to train it because in Ethiopia, many of the top pros live in Addis Ababa, but they will take buses out to or cars out to the forest on the outskirts of the city to do training. And that was a lot harder to get transportation during COVID. So her training was suffering as well. That, that was their explanation. But then also yeah, she doesn't so- race at all from December, 2022. She missed her spring marathon this year. She withdrew from London due to injury. There are these, you know, that's not totally uncommon. Someone misses a spring marathon, but it's just, it's pretty strange to go 159, 800 runner, then you kind of disappear from the scene for a while, and then you come back and you're the fastest and greatest marathon of the world's ever seen. There are some questions about that. But the other side, you could say she was in the wrong event all along. Now she's actually healthy. She's been able to train in the event she's always been designed for. And she gets to train in these super shoes, which you get the compound benefit of not just racing in them, but you get to run faster in workouts. You recover faster in workouts. I think we forget how much these things can actually aid athletes in training add that all together. And now that she's finally able to put that stuff together, now she's showing what she's truly capable of. That's That will be the argument in her favor. I get why people are suspicious. We've been burned too many times, but to me, her missing COVID is not a big deal. She could be like Ryan Hall in the wrong event all these years. And let's talk about, since she's come back, this nonsense on Twitter, someone's like, she ran a 234 marathon, you know, 18 months ago. Now she's run 211. Give me a break. Look, she hadn't raced in 2020, 2021. They probably just threw her in some marathon, totally unfit. She runs 234 without any races. So she hadn't run like three years. They did. She she ran that race for an appearance fee. They knew she wasn't in shape. The the idea that she was a 234 marathoner and improved, but no, she wasn't. I'm 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 just going to go through her results since then. Her results since then. That was in March. She then goes 67-28, victory. 68-20, victory. 67-40, victory. 
31-41, victory. 31-27, victory. 30-52, victory. 215-37, victory. She's won everything in sight, and then she's won this race. So, you know, whatever. Now, I do agree that I, I'm not saying I know that she's clean, but I just think that, I don't know, if, if Radcliffe, I guess a lot of people think Radcliffe is dirty. If someone was able to run 215 clean back in the day without super shoes, this shouldn't shock us this more. One thing I could think about too, John, is how do you explain this? Well, I would explain it also as like the rise of women in Africa. Like there weren't nearly as many women competing. Like the gap between like the Western women were more competitive than the, the Western men are in the marathon. And now we're getting more and more African women competing. It's becoming a more freer society over there. They're getting more opportunity to compete. But that doesn't explain to me, though, like why they would be 8% on the world record in the marathon and not any other event. So it's right. a little you bit would, strange. Look, but Ross Tucker, Ross Tucker has a good quote here. He says, you know, when he says about doping, we was talking about the shoes. He says, all this shoe stuff, I don't think it doesn't mean she might not be doping. What I'd love to see is I'd like them to publish how often these athletes provide a urine sample and a blood sample for the passport. It would be helpful to know. Your confidence in a Safa's performance would be quite different if you knew she had provided 17 samples between Berlin last year and this race compared to if it's just three, right? So that would help. And so would more race results from her. I don't know if World Athletics profile on her is just missing race results, but she rarely, barely ever races 10 kilometers or half marathon. So naturally, one performance a year this good is going to raise, raise eyebrows. So... I agree with that, but she raced a ton last year. She just hasn't raced much this year. And I really hope that she would be in the out of competition testing pool. But look, if she's doping, why would we think that she's the only one doping? Right. I, Robert, there are a couple of things about this. One, the AIU, I think that in general, they're pretty good at their job. They would know to be testing this woman seriously after her breakthrough in Berlin, given her backstory. I'm sure that they have been trying to test her. It will be great to have information about how often she's tested. They say, I've asked them, why can't you publish that information for every athlete? USADA publishes it. Why can't you? They said there are privacy laws in different countries. <sighs> That's frustrating to me. I don't understand why a privacy law would prevent you from saying how many times someone was drug tested, but I'm not familiar with all these laws. Anyway, yeah, I agree. That would give people more confidence. It would be naive to suggest that doping isn't a possible explanation for this. Um, she's more than two minutes ahead of the next fastest woman. She hasn't been convicted, obviously. She hasn't been linked to drugs. But whenever you're talking about a world record, especially a major, major outlier world record like this, you would have to consider it as a possibility. But at the same time, I also wouldn't be shocked if in Chicago next weekend, we see Ruth Chepengedich run 212 or 213. I mean, remember, she went out really fast last year, 65-44, even faster than Acefa went out in Berlin. She ended up blowing up, but she still ran 214-18. I think on that day, Ruth Chepengedich was in 213 shape. It wouldn't shock me if we're in Valencia we get a 213 or a 212. If Gide, you know, if Gide runs another marathon, I think she could run 212 or 213. I do think that that two-minute gap isn't going to exist for that long but yeah of course you have to consider doping as a possibility but i also am not aware of any drug that would make you two minutes faster than the next person in your event now the one thing about the doping the people at the aiu you know they admitted to me 
in Tokyo, I mean, not in Tokyo, in Budapest, I said, why do we have all these positives in Kenya, but not Ethiopia? This doesn't make sense to me. Now there's more, there's actually, if you look at like the number of sub 210 marathoners, there's way more from Kenya than Ethiopia. There's a more, there's a much higher quantity of runners in, in Kenya um, as compared to Ethiopia, which, but at the top, maybe this is similar, which is weird because Ethiopia has twice the population as Kenya, but they kind of admitted to me, they're like, yeah, we have a much better take of what's happening on the ground in Kenya. We're trying to get a better feel for Ethiopia. I mean, because Ethiopia is actually a poorer country than Kenya too. So if you're saying oh, it's a financial reason to dope, well, that, that would be even stronger in Ethiopia. So I would think that we would have more doping positives coming from Ethiopia in the years to come than we currently have. But a few other stats here, John. And Robert, it is kind of frustrating. We can't just purely celebrate this as, oh my God, this was a fantastic run. Because if she is clean, this is an amazing performance. One of the best in history. But unfortunately, that's the reality of the sport in 2023 is that you can't just say, oh, this was a great run by a great athlete. You have to wonder, oh, what went into it? Was it shoes? Was it doping? That's just kind of how we have to assess our performances in in professional sports, unfortunately. Here's some other stats from Valencia. From Berlin. Berlin. 615, John. What does that mean? 615. I don't know what that, that is. is the, that oh, is the, the gap, gap to between, second place. Yeah. No, no. That's the gap between a Sasa and the American men's record in the marathon, 205.38. Do you know what the gap between a Sasa and the women's American record is? It's 636. Yes, that's right, folks. She's closer to the U.S. men's marathon record than the women's marathon record. 615 to the men's record, 636. Also, this race behind her was incredibly deep. Eight women broke 220. Berlin, that's a new record, surpassing the seven they did in Valencia last year. And then for the men, even, because we'll get into this when we talk about how bad the American men were. Nine men broke 205 in Berlin. It's a new record. Seven had done it in Dubai 2018. Fifteen men broke 206. Only 11 did it. The previous record was 11 from Valencia 2020. Yeah, that's that's why we say it's hard to compare historical times because we're just at a whole new level. And you have Stephanie Bruce had a post about this. You're having people making mistakes and they're just not paying for it. Like you can go out. The the, the halfway splits for these women were was insane, Robert. Six women went through sub-67 at the half. That's world record pace. The world, old world record was 214.04. You had another five women coming through in 67 minutes, 67.41 or faster. So normally when that happens, I'm just like, okay, you're just going to see DNF, DNF, DNF. These people, it, it's going to be miserable. And some of them did blow up, but a bunch of them hung on to ran, run in the 219s and, or 217s or 218s. And usually you didn't used to see that well, before super shoes, when people would go out super fast, they'd just be totally cooked and drop out. And you don't see it quite as much these days. The American marathoner, Stephanie Bruce tweeted out, if you train and race in the pre super shoe era, it's hard to describe recalibrating times and performances. The way athletes can now train, recover and not pay for mistakes in the marathon is justifying logic. It's amazing on so many levels, but also crazy stuff. I like that tweet. And then I, I hated this tweet. Renee and Shirley, John, who is she again? She's, She's a Jamaican anti-doping whistler, whistleblower. Yeah. She was involved in the Jamaican anti-doping movement, I think. She says, the recalibration by an 800 athlete who didn't just transition to the 1,500, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, but went straight to the marathons. I don't care how much she improved. It makes a mockery of all the hard work you and others 
including Miss Burrito, have put in to break a world record like this? Well, first of all, she did go to the 10,000 half marathon and it's been like, to me, like, I don't know, like the fact that this young woman who had Achilles problems and then missed two or three years and made no money battled out through COVID. That's the opposite of just making a mockery of it. She actually stuck with it. Wasn't getting paid shit. And now is the best marathoner in women's history. So she very well could be a doper. I'm not saying she's not, but to me, it's like, no, this is, this, this, this is the opposite of like instant success. There was like three, four barren years there. Now I guess you could say you could oh, really get desperate when you're not making any money for three or four years. Yes, you could. But you could also look at it optimistic, and I'm going to look at it optimistic because it's not like this coach has any history, right? Kamedu Defo, I'm I can't say with certainty either way. I think he has a pretty good reputation, from what I understand, but I I don't know if he's ever had an athlete popped on up. And what about the agent? Who's the agent? Johnny Demadonna, who has had some notable doping cases in the last couple of years, including uh, Diana Kipuke, who won Boston in 2021 and was stripped of that title. Um, one other thing, Robert, Andy Burford emailed us with a question. I thought it was a good one. Why are all the phenomenal times in 2023 by women? He was noting world records in the 1500 mile, 5,000 marathon. It's like, they all seem to be on the women's side. I don't know if that's quite true. Cause we have seen a men's world record in the steeple. We saw Jakob Ingebrigtsen break world records in lesser run events like the two mile and 2K. But it does seem like many of the headline performances are by women. What what do you put that to? I don't, the, I, I thought it was really interesting when I got the email at first, but I, I don't agree with it because we had the men's two mile record go. And I know that's an obscure distance, but that would have been, that's better than the 3000 record, which is we viewed as one of the best records in the books. So Ingebrigtsen just broke the 3,000 record, and that 2,000 time was damn good, too. So, And he ran a 3.43 mile. I, I mean, my answer would be, well, we had the men's marathon world record broken last year, just because, and Kiptum's been running insane times. And then the other thing is, we've got what I would say is one of the greatest talents in the history of the sport, Faith Kip Yegon, and she's in her prime. So she broke three of those records. So part of it, I think, can just be saying, hey, you've got an absolutely ridiculous talent right now at the peak of our powers. So that's why you're getting all these women's records, three of them by one woman. So, yeah, it is interesting to ponder, but I don't think it's as heavily tilted as it first appears. You do realize this record? John Kellogg's talking to me in the background. It's equivalent to a sub four mile for a woman. I mean, according to who? According to John Kellogg or according to World Athletics? To JK? According to his performance chart, we should look it up on the scoring table for men. I mean, that is pretty wild. I'm, I'm not. Is it? I, I just feel. I feel like some of these scoring tables haven't adjusted yet to account for the super shoes. But I don't know. Who, who's to say? All right, there was another race in Berlin. There was a men's race it involved Elliot Kipchoge. I think we should probably talk about it, Robert. He comes in, obviously off of the defeat in Boston in April, and. He goes out and he tries to do what he always does. He tries to run really fast. He went out in 60-22. He was on world record pace. He couldn't hold it. He actually, the second half of the marathon, I, I know he still won, but he didn't look, you know, as comfortable as he usually does. Usually late in the race, he's so powerful and strong and he's got that smile, grimace thing going on, but you're like, this guy's still rolling. And 
it wasn't quite that way in Berlin. He was slowing down. Grunt, you know, grunt. He was out really quickly, sixty twenty two, but he he ends up winning it in two hundred two forty two. I guess two things about this: one, he's back. Like this isn't like oh Boston, his end of his career. He's totally done. Like clearly, that's not the case. He's still very very good. This is a time that only two men in history have ever bedded Bekele and kept him, and then Kipchoge himself, obviously. But is it? Am I wrong to say? He's not as he, as good as he was last year. And I guess that's kind of unfair because he broke the world record in this race. But my takeaway is Eli Kipchoge is very, very good. But we may have seen the start of a decline from, you know, declining from the level of the greatest marathoner in history. It's harsh, but I don't think you're wrong. No. I went through the stats. This was a record-breaking day. This was perfect weather, apparently. Good weather, right? Very good weather. I wasn't watching. I mean, a woman ran two eleven. It was in the fifties. There wasn't much wind. It was cloudy for most of the race. Yeah, it was great marathon weather. But a declining Kipchoge still runs what? The eighth fastest time ever. I mean, the way I see it is, a year or two ago, if Kipchoge ran his best race, the best race he was capable of on that day, no one else is beating him. And now I think Kipchoge could run his best race and still get beaten in the Olympics by Kiptum or by Chibet but he's absolutely still one of the best in the world. He absolutely could win the Olympics next year. I think this will put him on the team. You know, I was talking to his agent beforehand. He felt pretty good about his chances, but at this point, even if he doesn't have a good race in the spring, Athletics Kenya is probably going to stay. Hey, it's Kipchoge. He's the two-time defending gold medalist. He won his full marathon. I think he'll be on the team for Paris. But yeah, if Kelvin, this is why it would have been great to see him and Kiptum race. Because if, if Kelvin Kiptum's in this race, does he beat Kipchoge? I don't know. I, I like it's it's interesting. It is interesting now in the sport moving forward, where it's not just oh, I don't view it as a total given. Like oh, if Kipchoge is in the race and he's fit, he's going to win. But what I do think we need to appreciate, I mean, just the longevity of this guy is insane. He's officially thirty eight years old, turns thirty nine in November. This was his sixteenth marathon win. In 19 starts, he's won Berlin five times, which is a record for any athlete. It's just nuts that he continues to be this good for this long in an event that is designed to break you down, an event where it's very difficult to sustain success for more than a couple of years. It's just absolutely remarkable what this guy has done. Sorry, John. I was being blown away by what this marathon is equal to on the World Athletic scoring tables. 355 in the mile, 1322 for 5,000, and 2802 for 10,000. So I guess we got some meat on the bones in the five and the 10 in the mile. Jesus Christ. No, I, I don't buy that. I'm sorry. We're, we're, we're decades away. We're like, we might be 100 years away from a woman running a 355 mile. I just refuse to believe those scoring tables are accurate. I take them with a big grain of salt. They haven't John, totally what is a woman? counted for the super shoe effect. John Kellogg's table does convert for the super shoe effect. I don't believe them either. Easier, but what, what I pointed out before on Friday's show or Tuesday's show last week was women are better the longer they go compared to the shorter they go. I mean, a mediocre man at cor- my Cornell teams could won 153 in 350 in, in 349 for 1500 easily, but they can't run 29 flat and 14 flat, and they certainly can't run 211. So the sh- the shorter the distance is just not fair to compare to women. Like you know what I'm saying? Like I think Mo would get beat by tons of high school boys, tons of them. Whereas this young lady, Safa, maybe a couple of high school boys are beating her. All right, Robert, I'm cutting you off from a Safa points or references. We've spent 
enough time on the women's race. Do you have anything you wanted to say about Kipchoge? I think your, your point of like, yeah, he's, he's one of the best in the world. I think we're starting to see a little bit of decline. And the question to me is what happens in 10 months? The decline is rapid generally in these things. Yeah. It's going to be fascinating. And I, I do think, I mean, this does provide a little more evidence to your point that this guy might not be built for the Hills, you know, that sort of course in Boston. I know he's won two championship marathons at the Olympics, but people, you know, when he ran poorly in Boston, there are a multitude of excuses thrown out, explanations thrown out. The one I believe is that he didn't train properly or race properly. He, you know, he didn't respect the course, but some people were saying, Oh, well, maybe he's just getting towards the end of his career. And, you know, we never would have known what a prime Kipchoge would have done. And I was like, I didn't totally buy that because he'd broken the world record like eight months before. And now we know that that wasn't the the case because he was in shape for that race. He run, he just ran 202. It's not like he tailed off and, and lost it. It was something else in Boston. It's a hole in his resume, but I don't know when we're next going to see him. Do we expect him to go to Boston this year? I don't, my guess is no. I bet he runs London or I bet he runs some other spring. I don't know. Would he come back and try Boston again? He said he's coming back at some point, but I kind of don't think he would do it in the Olympics. I think he would just kind of keep it what he's done in the past. Maybe he runs New York after the Olympics in 2024. He has said at some point he wants to start running three marathons a year, but it might be until April, 2025 in Boston or November, 2025 in New York that we see him on a, a course like that again. We need to see him in New York, whether he wins or loses the Olympics. Because, look, the world record days are past, and we don't want to wait till by 2025, he's going to be done. This is an elite force, I think. I mean, come on. Like, as I said before, it's like 18 months. You can be 18 months past your PR, and then you're pretty much on the decline. And I had a number of examples of that. Meb Kofleski was one. Who was the other one, John? Uh, anyways, but let's give him a little bit of credit because – we're acting like he's on the decline. He just beat two other guys that ran 203. Three other guys that... F- shit, sh- hell. Six other guys that ran... Five other guys that ran 204. Oh, he smoked them. I mean, yeah, I mean it, he, it was the deepest marathon in history, and he was a comfortable winner. They weren't even yeah. with him, right? No, they they were never with him. The, now, he was up by like 117, uh, 30K, and that gap got trimmed to... 31 seconds by the finish. The second and third place is very impressive. Vincent kept Kamoy 203.13 in his debut. And third was Tedes Tekele of Ethiopia, 203.24 in his debut. The guy who we thought would challenge him, Amos Kibrudo of Kenya, the London Marathon champ last year, he was only seventh in 204.49. Yeah, I, I don't want this to come across as like, oh, Kipchoge, you know, he could have done so much better. I don't expect the guy to break a world record every time out. Like, we're comparing when you're comparing him against his previous races, you're comparing him against some of the greatest marathons any human has ever run. But I'm just trying to put in context where he's at right now. I think it's it's great for the sport to have Kipchoge running well. It's impressive that he's been able to rally back and win. Like every time this guy's lost a marathon, he's responded not just by winning his next race, but by going on a winning streak across a couple of years. So his resilience in the face of those setbacks is impressive to me. He's clearly going to be a factor for the next year or two and continue being that. Uh, you know, it's interesting. It's more interesting when you've got Kipchoge in the Olympic marathon. If someone's going to come for the crown, they have to go through him. So good for the sport that he won. Interesting. Do we want to talk about that? You had 
this tweet you highlighted, Robert, about Reed Buchanan. Do you want to address that right now? Well, there's been a number of super hot threads in the message board this week. If you're not going to Let's Run every day, you're missing out on the daily news. Show you're a true running fan. Go to letsrun.com each and every day for your news, and then head over to the forum. It's our equivalent of sports talk radio. There was someone. There was a thread that was super hot in the morning yesterday saying that Liz McCol or not Liz McColgan, Eilish McColgan was trolling Acefa, which I didn't think her tweet was trolling Acefa. She's just like, this is amazing. Yeah, I didn't think so. Her tweet was. Acefa was at the Rio Olympics in 2016, over 800 meters, then went straight to the marathon last year. I keep telling Michael Rimmer, which is her partner, this could be his calling. Still time left for him to knock out a sub two hours in his first effort. I don't think that's trolling. I think it's just a kind of a, an amusing tweet. I had no issue with that at all. And before that, she wrote 211, question mark, what's going on? Never thought I'd see that within my lifetime. She's probably done enough to qualify for the men's marathon. So whatever. I mean, I... I that to me is not enough. And then she specifically clarified later, I never accuse anyone of being a drug. She's not t- failed positive. So she's just saying it's like mind blowing. Anyways, there was another thread though. That was super hot yesterday morning. And then there's a new thread called Reed Buchanan, who's a 211 marathoner from the U.S., went to the University of Portland. And Des Linden rip Elliot Kipchoge on Twitter. And what happened was Reed put out a tweet saying, Well, L.A. Kipchoge put out a tweet saying, if I can inspire someone somewhere in the world, that is my happiness. And Reed Buchanan, I guess, thought this was a little corny and said, give me a break. And then all Des London did was like the tweet. And now we have over 100 posts, people ripping Des and Reed for ripping someone faster than. There's always a thing on Let's Run. You're not allowed to criticize anyone faster than you. So I used to be big in the early days of Let's Run. If people are like, what's your PR? I'm like, it drove me nuts. Like, you don't have to be the fastest person to criticize someone. Now, what do I think of this? I, I don't get what Reed Buchanan is aiming for here. What does he get from criticizing Kipchoge? Like, I'm not sure. I mean, some of Kipchoge's sayings, platitudes are a little bit corny, but do we really need to point that out? I'm, I'm sure he does inspire, inspire people. I mean, there's a couple things here. One, I'm sure he's not the only person who believes this, Reed Buchanan, I mean, but... And Kipchoge does speak in aphorisms and platitudes, but I also think Kipchoge genuinely believes this stuff. Like, if you talk to him consistently through the years, what does he do once he wants to retire? He wants to continue inspiring people. He wants to make this world a running world, is what he says. I think he believes all this stuff. How does he spend his free time? He reads motivational books. Like, that's the kind of person he is. And I don't have an issue with that. I think, yeah, I don't understand why you would just take a shot at him. Like, I don't understand what you have to gain from it. Yeah. There was an interesting post on the message board from an anonymous poster. Can I say this to him by the name of butter? My banana bread. Kipchoge is an amazing athlete, undoubtedly the greatest marathoner of all time. And he's also created a public image. That's approximately as corny as Ned Flanders. It's fine to roll your eyes at a guy who will say he wants to quote, run a beautiful race and set a personal best end quote, but won't admit he's going for the world record when asked directly even though he already has it. It's also fine to snark on a guy who thinks he's saying something profound when he claims his running proves, quote, that no human is limited, unquote, while being one of the five most talented distance runners of all time. That being said, Reed isn't doing anything, or Reed isn't doing anything egregious by playfully noting this on Twitter, and Des certainly doesn't deserve several pages of overly defensive dudes telling her how irrelevant she is just because she hit this throwaway joke with a like. I agree with it, but I just don't see why you benefit, like, it might be a little bit corny, but he believes it. Don't talk down about it. Not a big deal. 
Yeah, not not a huge deal. But I also I do think like Kipchoge genuinely does inspire many many people. Like he's the best marathoner in the world. He says new human is limited, which is said so many times at this point. It's starting to lose meaning. But at the same time, he has genuinely pushed the limits of humanity in distance running. Like before, they said that he was going to break two hours. I thought that was a load of crap. Insane. I was like, this is never ever going to happen. And he actually did it. He ran one fifty nine forty one for 26.2 miles. That's ridiculous. Like he actually has proved that the limits of what we thought was possible are actually a lot higher than we initially thought. So in that way he has, he has shown some of the stuff he says, like it, it, I don't think it's just an act that he puts on and that his social media team tweets out. Like he actually believes this and he's actually done a good chunk of this stuff. Right. And just because he's one of the most talented people in his history doesn't, mean that or technology Adam doesn't part of progressing a society is with the help of technology and talented people. Ellie, don't feel too bad that Reed came after you. I think he also came after Jonathan Galt a few years ago on Twitter. He did. He didn't take kindly to my 2017 column about Portland running a B team and sandbagging that conference meet, which I still stand by. Anyway, looking, there were other things that happened in Berlin. Very good day for Ellie Kipchoge. Very good day for Tigas Decefa. Not so good for the American men running this. We were thinking going in, we had Scott Farble, Tashomi Mekinen, you also had Jared Ward, Jake Riley, Tyler Pinnell. You were thinking, okay, maybe one of these guys, can they get the standard? I thought Scott Farble had a pretty good chance to do it. He thought he was capable of running 207. He was on 207 pace through halfway and had to stop to throw up. And we tried to go again. He wrote on Instagram, his glutes and his hamstring just wouldn't respond and he dropped out we had another american to show him Ekinen, goes out very aggressively he was on american record pace through halfway 62 24 but he faded badly down the home straight ends up running 210 16 then jared ward actually got the most camera time of any of them because he spent a good chunk of the second half of the race running with tigas to sefa it was interesting to hear his thoughts on that you know he sees this lead vehicle coming behind him he's like that can't be the women's lead vehicle right that'd be that would mean they're running like 212 pace well actually it was and he decided to run with her for a little bit and then at the end he basically said hanging on to her helped him continue running that pace and he moved ahead beat her by about 10 seconds in the end he ran 211 44 robert i guess let's start with fable first what do you make of his run and he says his body is intact afterwards like if you're scott fable do you try to run another full marathon? He only raced 13.1 miles or a little more than that, like almost 30K. Do you try to give it a go either in Chicago or maybe Amsterdam, which is October 15th, so three weeks after Berlin, and try to hit the standard one more time? Because right now, him and many of the Americans are kind of in an uncertain spot about where they stand for Olympic qualifying. If I was him, I would certainly consider it. thought he was in 207 shape, so why not take another crack? i go to Chicago. But look, in terms of these U.S. results, it's simple to me. Biggest loser, Jared Ward. He needed to hit that 211.30 standard just in case it's really hot in Orlando. He doesn't have it. Now, if he gets top three in Orlando and the U.S. is sending three, which is still to be determined, you can go get the standard after Orlando. Uh, You have until when? I think the end of April. So you could try to go to London or something like that. So that's the big one. McConan, I think, if I was him, I would have 
probably run more conservative, but I think this is a good race for him in the sense of this guy's definitely one of my top 10 contenders for the Olympic team. Not many Americans can run 210 period. Certainly not many of them can do it after going out in 62 minutes. He's just going to be in the lead pack at the trials. He doesn't have to try to do anything stupid. I don't like the way he ran this race, but I think he's finally, right? It was a PR for him. It was. The interesting thing about Mekkonen in this race, Robert, is we're always saying we want to see Americans go for it and try to put themselves out there and run fast. And if they blow up, they blow up. So from that perspective, you can admire part of what he did here, but I just think there's a time and a place to do that. And this was not the time. He, For him, the priority in this race should have been the Olympic standard, 208.10. And I don't think you get that by running your first half in 62.24 unless you're in like 206 shape right now. And I don't think he was. I think maybe he was in 207 or 208 shape. I don't know. I, I just think you don't take a risk like that. You don't take a risk by going out to run a marathon on 204 pace when your PB is 211, it's not worth it in this race. This race, focus on the standard. And maybe next time, you know, when you run a full marathon next year or something like that, that's when you go for it. Now, maybe there's a big bonus in his contract. If he, if he runs a big time, actually, I'm not sure if he has a sponsor at this point, but maybe if he runs a huge PB or close to the American record, that, makes a huge difference for him financially. But to me, John, this was huge. a missed opportunity. This was a missed opportunity though to get the Olympic standard. And I think that should have been the priority in this race. I think this guy's missed out on so much money. Last year when he when he found out he was an American and he runs 65, I remember thinking, does he have a good agent? Now his his wife is an agent, so she knows what she's doing. But I was making this guy should be making a minimum of $150,000 a year. I thought this guy's a clearly Olympic hopeful, but he just hasn't put it together in the marathon. So yeah, but if, if he imagine how much money he would have made if he got out and run the American record in this race, everybody would have signed him up before the Olympic team, before the trials. But it'll be interesting on that front. But in, in, look, in terms of the, the big debate over the weekend was, will the U.S. get three? So there's a 208.10 American standard, Olympic standard, and you qualify for sure. No Americans have that. But if you got, if you have, if anyone ranked in the top 65 on the road to Paris list, which is the world rankings, which doesn't exist yet, by the way, but it's going to be the world marathon rankings plus anyone who has the auto time that's not in the rankings. So if you're in the top 65, if the U.S. has three on that list as of February 1st of next year, anyone who's run under 211.30 can go to the Olympics as long as they're top three of the trials. So right now, the U.S. rankings. We've got Fobble at 39, Connor Mance at 45, and Zach Panning at 56. So we do have three in the top 65. I've looked up, spent a lot of time on this, to figure out who has the standard that's not ranked that high. Believe it or not, based on my can tell, there's only three people that have hit the standard that aren't also in the world rankings. Well, there's more than three that have done it, but there's only three from countries that don't already have three people. It doesn't matter if there's 20 people from Kenya or whatever. So we would be, you know, at that point, 42, 48, and 59. The problem is Fabo is going to lose his Boston Marathon time, and he's going to replace it with a 213 from Chicago. So he loses a 209 to 213. And the reason why he loses that, to clarify, Robert, is the rankings only take into account performances in the last 18 months. One of his current ranking times is from 2022 Boston. By the end of the rankings period, on January 30th, 2024, it will be more than 18 months since that Boston race. So he's going to drop down to a tie for 61. So 61, 62, you put the three people out of him. He's down to 65. So he's right on the limit. Now, who knows if all 65 would say everyone from those lists is going to go, but 
basically looking ahead to Chicago, Matt McDonald is like one or two points behind him. So if Matt McDonald runs well, I think Mance is safe. So Mance getting the standard or not is not really going to help unless Mance has got – we want to make sure Mance isn't losing a time, though. Hopefully Mance doesn't have any marathons coming off the books. No, because his two rankings are Boston from this year and Chicago from last year, and that would still be within the 18-month window. So he should be all right. So he's, and Panning is uh, – 56 is a little bit nervous-wracking, but I, I think there's hope for Matt McDonald, the Princeton grad, to move up. If Galen Rupp gets the standard, because Galen Rupp's only got one race, right? Yeah, he's got the, the 2022 Worlds and no other finishes in the in the period. The question about – I mean, if Rupp is healthy, if we get anything close to old Rupp, he could get the standard in Chicago. So that would give them two with Mance on the rankings and Rupp by standard. And then you're wondering, Leonard Correa was just added to the Chicago field today. He's run 207.56 in the past. Usually you don't get added to a marathon field two weeks out unless you're in pretty good shape. So I wonder if he could get the standard – it's going to be interesting to see, but yeah, Chicago is going to be a big race for the Americans in terms of like getting the standard or solidifying rankings, that sort of thing. Leonard career was sixth in New Haven, 20K. He ran 209.31 in Paris. The problem is these ranking points. I don't think Paris is, is it platinum level, John? Probably not, right? I don't think these so. These ranking points really help. Like even finishing ninth, like I was looking at it, Scott Fobble was ninth in New York in 213. The, and you get 45 bonus points for finishing ninth. You're like, what does that mean? 45 points is like two minutes in the marathon. So it takes like a 213 to a 211. It takes a 209 to a 207. So if, and, and there's no, the problem is there's no, they hurt you for, they penalize you for running Boston because it's downhill, but they don't help you. They don't do anything for New York, which is uphill. So let's just hope a couple Americans run well in Chicago and then we won't have to worry about this. But if they don't, you could still get top three at the trials and then go bang out the standard or go increase your ranking because they're going to take 80. It's a little complicated. Yeah, the whole thing's very messy. I, If I had to bet, I would still say the U.S. gets three men to Paris on the marathon. But it's not it's not a lock. Um, but yeah, every, every American marathoner should be rooting for Galen Rupp to run really good race at the Chicago Marathon because if he gets the standard, that unlocks a spot that anyone can take at the trials. By the way, Paul Chalimo, two-time Olympic medalist at 5,000, he was on Twitter the other day. This ought to scare you if your dream is to sneak onto that team. Put up a poll. Should I run the Olympic marathon, trials? You can still vote. Do you think most people want him to run it, John, or not? Yes or no? I bet people want him to run it, yeah. 89.9% say yes. 10% say no. And I don't know why he. I don't know why he would. He made the world's team this year at five thousand meters. He's won two Olympic medals at that distance. He's not going to do anything in the marathon, even if he makes the U.S. team. So, I guess if it's a thing, like, he was going to do, you know, lock up an Olympic spot and get a big bonus. Make sure that he's on the Olympic team. Yeah, but do, Robert, come on. His chances of making the Olympic team are definitely better at five thousand than they are in the marathon. Ooh, really? That is not a debate. The guy made the 5K team this year. We don't know anything about what he could do in the marathon. John, he's a grade A talent. We don't have very many grade A talents trying the marathon. Too much uncertainty with the marathon. I, if you want to make 5,000, he's got to beat Woody Kincaid, Grant Fisher. Who else? Joe Klecker, Abdi Noor, Sean McGordy. I mean, he beat everyone except one guy this year. Abdi Noor beat him. He won the trials in 2021. I, Come on, Robert. This this isn't a debate. I think I think his his odds are similar in both events. 
I don't I think that's absurd. Who's definitely better than him in the marathon? I mean, we don't know anyone who's definitively definitely better, but he could be awful. His floor is so much lower. I mean, I would pick Scott Fable over him. I would pick Connor Mance over him. I would pick probably Leonard Courier over him. I would pick Galen Rupp over him. There are a lot of guys. I mean, we just don't know. He could. I'm not saying Paul Shalimo couldn't make the Olympic marathon team. I'm saying his chances are better in the 5K or the 10K. All right, John, let's move on to some other topics. We talked about it on the Friday 15, but we need to talk about it here. By the way, if you're not a supporters club member, you're not getting a bonus podcast every week. Go to letterrun.com slash subscribe today. Oh, speaking of supporters club, I'm thinking of, of when I come out with new shirts, just making them supporters club only, John. And I'm really obsessed with making this Ingerbritsen themed t-shirt. I am the pacemaker with a Norwegian flag. I think I sent it to you. I sent it to my buddy Ross. He likes the way it looks. But then I was reading a post on the message board and someone's like, you know, we had, we had this big talk last week about how Ingerbritsen says, that's just not the way I run. I always run from the front. I don't sit and kick. Someone's like, he claims he's the pacemaker, but what does he do in the 5,000? He sits and kicks. And I never thought about it. So am I not allowed to make this shirt, John? Because he's not the pacemaker in the 5,000. And this just kind of proves that, like, yeah, people talk about how they're they gutsy and they lead, but that's only because they have no kick. Everyone would sit and kick if they could, as Bruce Hyde once told me at Cornell. Yeah, well, he doesn't do it in the 5,000, but he also doesn't run the 5,000 on the circuit very much. I mean, he... When he ran the two mile and the three K earlier this year, he was going from the front. So I still think the phrase applies to Ingebrigtsen, but yeah, in a championship 5,000, he runs from behind because that's the smart thing to do. And also let's remember 2022 world championships. He took it from a K out. It's not like he was just sitting on everyone the whole time. He said in Budapest, he sat on Katia because he wasn't as strong as last year because of the illness. So he had to play sit and kick, but he did, you know, go from quite a ways out in, in, in Eugene in 2022. By the way, Jakob and Elizabeth, newlyweds, if you're listening to the podcast on your honeymoon, congratulations. Welcome to married life. Jakob, I'm going to put in the show notes one of the most famous threads in Let's Run History. Welcome to the postnuptial shutoff. I hope you haven't experienced that yet. Elizabeth, since Jakob prefers Jonathan's takes, I hope you prefer mine. Yeah, congrats to the happy couple. All right, Robert, let's talk about what you hinted at. We did have a lengthy discussion about this on the Supporters Club podcast, the Friday 15. The Olympic trials in 2024 are going back to Eugene, the fourth straight U.S. outdoor championships that will be held there, the fifth straight Olympic trials. I mean, my main takeaway was I think Eugene is a great place to host a track meet. I think that Tracktown USA will do a great job with the Olympic trials, but... This is a missed opportunity to not get it in somewhere else in the country. The question is, is there another city or local organizing committee who wants to pay USATF the money they demand to host this meet and that has the desire and the volunteer base to actually host it in a top track stadium? And we really don't know. We don't know if anyone else bid for this. Well, I think that's something we should look into ourselves in terms of if anyone else bid, but... I disagree with you on, on part of that. Why do we need a volunteer base? Yes, it saves money, but if you can't find the volunteers, you hire people. And to me, this is extremely disappointing. Like Eugene does a great play, does a, a, a great job of hosting, but at most, I would say once every eight years, they should host the trials. I would almost say 
put them never in Eugene, or once every 16 or once every 12, because the trials sell themselves. The Olympics, it's huge. They got 20, 20, over 20,000 in 2012 and 2016 in Eugene. They couldn't get even half that at the, at, at, at the, at the Worlds. The same thing with the TV ratings. They're way higher than the World Championships. Like, Americans respond to the word Olympics by a factor of 5 or 10. So, and I'm afraid they're going to put 2028 in L.A., which I think is a mistake. I think this should go around the country. It should move around. I would put it in Omaha, as I said before. Austin. Boston. I was looking at it, and people were like, we don't have tracks. Well, you can take a high school track and build temporary bleachers. Or you can take an uh, NFL stadium or an MLS stadium, build the track up. It would cost a lot of money. I'm not sure how much, $5 million, $10 million. It's not going to cost the hundreds of millions it does to build a stadium. I know for a fact that a friend told me this, that Mark Cuban, the Dallas Mavericks owner, looked into having starting his own track circuit a number of years ago, and he was going to build up in football stadiums a track. Because a track is bigger than a football field, it's bigger than a soccer field. You just build up the boards, you take up like maybe the lower, part of the lower bowl, and you put the track in there. It wouldn't be cheap. I, mean, I think it was like $4 million to make the track custom made in Portland for World Indoors. So maybe it's twice that. But Robert, this is a pie in the sky idea. Who is going to spend 5 to $10 million fitting out a big stadium to host the Olympic trials in a sport that isn't very popular and you have no idea if you're going to recoup this money? I just don't see that happening. <laughs> Who, who, who's going to spend it? USA track and field if they had any leadership. If Max Siegel wasn't just stealing our, our money. It, it's, it's ridiculous. Weldon's going to go on a rant. Weldon got mad that I that I linked the trials going to Eugene to Max Siegel's $3.8 million in compensation in 2020 and 2021. They're very much related to me. You're talking about where's the money going to come? It's going to come from USATF. Look, the reality is we know that Eugene paid at least $3 million to host the last trials. So if it's just a matter of USATF getting $3 million a year, $3 million, excuse me, one time, where can you find that? If Max Siegel was not paid a gross $3.8 million a year and was paid a more reasonable $800,000 a year, we would have $3 million. So instead of having Eugene, we could have it in Omaha. We could have it in Austin. We could have it in any country without any financial hit to, to, to USATF. And if you multiply this 2 to $3 million that he's overpaid based on a normal nonprofit salary, by four, you would have eight to twelve million dollars, John. For eight to twelve million dollars, I guarantee you damn well that you could build a track in the middle of a football stadium or MLS stadium and take it down for that price. So don't tell me it's a pie in the sky thing. USATF should run this as a lost leader, not as something that can benefit. They're not gonna growing. do that. They're not gonna do that when they can get Eugene to foot the bill and Max Siegel's salary, it's John, not going to be $3.8 million for the next three years. It's going to be, it might be $2.5 or $3 million, but it's not going to be that high, I don't think. And they're not going to do it. I mean, you can say you want them to do it. The board likes Max Siegel. It's not going to happen. John, you think he's going to run USATF for the rest of his life? I don't. The board is, is ridiculous. And look, the reality is Nike paid him over $500 million over 2025 years. And a number, a huge percentage of that, a, a significant percentage of that, goes to a bonus every year to Max Siegel. It's a brilliant way of legally, you know, it's all legal. I'm not saying it, but, you know, if you paid Max Siegel $2 million a year for a no-bid contract, that would be considered a bribe. But you do it this way, and it's a performance bonus, and the board loves him. 
and it's ridiculous. It's not good for every meat to go to Eugene, and I'm so sick and tired of going to Eugene for every damn meat. Anyone that is a diehard track fan that like maybe has kids and they're teenagers and they're kind of getting them, you know, maybe you go out to the trials as part of family vacation. They've already been to Eugene. They either went there for the last trials. They went there for the high school nationals. They went there for the world World championships, the diamond league to final. They're going to be less inclined to do it before, but if you had it hell in Idaho or anywhere, I went to new Orleans, the 96 trials. I remember a big crowd, 92 trials. And I don't want it in LA in nineties in, in twenty twenty eight because they had it in Atlanta in twenty twenty eight and it was just a nothing. It was too big of a stadium. Nobody it wasn't crowded. It didn't seem full. You need to have it in a smaller town where it's a big deal. Rant over. Okay. Well to play devil's advocate here though, one, Eugene, I'm fine with Eugene and getting every other Olympic trials because this is the best track stadium in the country. It would seem a waste not to take advantage of it and not to reward Track Town USA for putting on top-notch meets year after year. I'm fine with every other trials being in Eugene because you know they, they're taking these US championships in years that other people probably aren't even bidding for them. And then you're going to say, no, you do such a great job. We're going to have it only in years where you don't get the most important meet. No, they should get the Olympic trials every so often. Five in a row is excessive, but also... I guess, Robert, what's your argument for moving it around the country? I think it should be around the country, but is this really going to make, is it going to make track and field more popular by having a trials in Austin, Texas or Miami or some other city? Will that have a lasting impact? Or you just think it's, it's better for the sport not to have it in the same place every time. Like what's your reasoning? Why shouldn't it be in Eugene every year? Because they have track fatigue in Eugene. It's not going to excite new people. If you have it in, I keep saying Omaha because I looked out. There's a there's a small stadium there that would looks like they have like grass fields around. You could put stadiums in there, anyways. But if you have it in hell, Indianapolis, where USATF is headquartered, or Austin, you're going to get like people that aren't used to track excited about it. I would really put play in the patriotism. You know, I actually was saying Nebraska because I was thinking they had eighty thousand for a women's volleyball game. Don't tell me there's eighty thousand people in Nebraska excited about women's volleyball. There was eighty thousand people in Nebraska where there's not a lot to do normally, not a lot of exciting events. Excited to go to one event and make history and support this thing that's coming to town. And the same would be true for the Olympic trial. So then you get, hey, you get fifty thousand people that have never seen a tr- pro track meet into track, and then when the Olympics are on in twenty twenty eight, they watch those. Okay, I can kind of buy that. I again, I'm not. A, I like the idea of the trials moving around, but I, I'm not. I don't know. Wait, so it's just because it's great. not going to make track, just because it's not going to make track more popular, you know, we 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 don't we don't host it somewhere just because it's a better idea. Like, no, no, no. Like, I'm like, not. Pe- 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 this reminds me of the argument people were making about LA Kipchoge in the message board. Like, I work at a sporting goods store. No one knows who he is, so so he doesn't inspire people. No. He's not well-known like soccer players, but he does inspire plenty of people. So, but that's a dumb argument. Just because he's not like massively popular doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Yeah. I'm No, I'm in favor of moving the trials around. I just kind of wanted to clarify your reasoning a little bit. Anyway, that is that is something I do aim on working on is reaching out to some of these other cities who've hosted in the past, Sacramento, Des Moines. Uh, did they bid in the trial? Mount Sac. Did they bid? Were they interested in bidding for the 2024 trials? What about Chattanooga? They bid a million dollars for a marathon trials, which is going to bring in like 500 athletes and, and, and parents. It's going to bring in like 2,000 people. The, the trials bring in 20,000 people for a week. 
Do you know how much more that's worth in terms of hotel taxes, tourism, all of that stuff? You're on national TV for a week. It's massive. It's worth it's certainly more than three times what the trials were worth, the marathon trials were. So put it in Chattanooga. I guarantee it would be a big success. All right, Robert. A couple other things before we head out. Cross country is back. Now, some of us might not have noticed because the track season only just finished and now we're in marathon season, but there are some notable results around the country. This was kind of the first big weekend where a lot of the top schools were running some of their best athletes, not all of their best athletes. The Dellinger Invitational on Friday in Oregon. You pointed this out because Oregon has a lot of, they, they have this historic recruiting class. Simeon Birnbaum, who we both agree is a huge talent. Connor Burns, who was running terrific times this year. They have an Australian, Archie Noakes, who ran very well at World Cross Country this year. The question is, uh, is Jerry Schumacher actually going to run these athletes or is he just going to redshirt them? I think we all want to see him run them. I don't know. I don't know if these guys are as talented as I think they could be. They might not be sticking around five years. So the idea of preserving a year of eligibility doesn't make that much sense to me. But we saw them run at their home invitational unattached. The winner was Davis Bob of Cal Poly, former LSU runner. He transferred to run for Ryan Van Hoy, 23-40. Simeon Birnbaum, very impressive, I think, in his first collegiate race, 23-44 for third. Noakes, like I mentioned, the the Aussie, he was 10th in 24-06. And then Connor Burns was only 48th in 24-45. Do you have any takeaways from seeing the, the baby ducks make their debut? I thought it was pretty good for Birnbaum and, and Noakes, but I, I was just... I mean, how, how good was Connor Burns in high school and cross country? I was, I was just stunned by how bad that was. But I, I don't have high hopes for him as a pro prospect compared to Burnbaum. Burn, I'm all in on Burnbaum. Burns is from, you know, his dad's a former college coach. I just feel like he's not the talent that Burnbaum is. But I was kind of stunned by like 45th and some no-name meet for Burns. And then you go out to, to the Nationals this year are going to be near me. They're going to be in Charlottesville, University of Virginia. They had the Virginia Invitational. NAU won the men and men's and women's titles, but you know, Stanford looked like the t- they had the team that could win the title this year based on what they did last year. But then the NCAA champion goes pro, but Leo young 46th place. Now this meet was pretty loaded. So that's at least better than what Connor Burns ran. And then Lex young was 75th place. Welcome to college boys. It's a lot harder than high school, isn't it? That was my main takeaway from the weekend with those guys. Yeah. Those results weird to me because this was this was a top this was probably the strongest field of the weekend you had a number of very good teams running this uva meet and stanford i thought they would be i know they lost charles hicks but they've still got kai robinson and he ran he finished third in this race he ran well they've got other talent on their team but i was surprised by how poorly stanford ran and i don't know if they if this is just they're in a heavy training block or something like something has to be up because they're not this bad. They're not ninth place in this field. It, they should be better than this. And I'm not writing off any of these freshmen like Leo Young or Lex Young or Connor Burns after one race. It can take a while. It can take a whole season to kind of get used to college. But I, I did think the Youngs, based on what they'd run you know, in high school, I, I thought they'd be able to step in right away and be factors. And maybe they could. Maybe they could by November. Not an auspicious debut. I was also surprised Cole Sprout, who I think could be a potential top 10 guy. He's finished NCAA cross. He's finished 15th before 
he was 62nd in this race. So I don't know. Something was up with Stanford because Kai Robinson was really the only guy who ran well in this race. Nothing was up with NIU. They won both of these races. They won the men's race without Nico Young. Drew Bosley wins it. Theo Quarks was was sixth. He's had trouble staying sort of consistent the whole year through and being a factor in cross country. But if he's on a new level, you know, they're going to be very good once again, especially if Nico Young is healthy and running. And then the women's team who have been buoyed by a couple of transfers. New Mexico's program basically fell apart when Joe Franklin left and went to Louisville. So their whole team essentially transferred. They got a Graceland Larkin was their third runner. She's a New Mexico transfer. They won the race, Elise Stearns, individually. And New Mexico only scored, sorry, NAU only scored 48 points. Now this field comparatively wasn't quite as strong as the men's field, but you know it's still a major invitational against some top teams to score 48. NAU is going to be very good and, and might be the biggest cont- challenger to uh, NC State this year on the women's side. By the way, Connor Burns is only 32nd in Nike Cross National, so I guess I shouldn't. He's not a cross country star, so shouldn't be surprised by that. He's he's a mile, you know. He's like a weeding or a centro. Not expected to be a big guy there. To me, the quote right. So you said they might challenge on the women's side in uh, NAU for NC State. The biggest challenge to NAU on the men's side, well, last year I think the team that should have won they won the sixth man, but they didn't win the title because that's not the way they break the ties. Oklahoma State, they're the ones that I noticed the most to me this week, John, because. I was looking at these big meets. I didn't see Oklahoma State. So then I went into Tifers and I was like, where did Oklahoma State run? They ran at home at their coat Cowboy Jamboree. And I don't know, they scored 26 points. Texas was 32. That was irrelevant to me. I just looked at the individual results and I see Oklahoma State won two. And there's two guys I'd never heard of. I clicked on their bios on Oklahoma State. There's nothing there. Dennis Kipengedich of Kenya, Brian Musau of Kenya. And I gave you a call right before we started the show. I said, what do we know about these guys? Are they legit? And your answer was? Well, they're clearly legit. If you look at their results, Dennis Kipengedich won this race in 23-21. That's a terrific time on Oklahoma State's course. He won by 20 seconds. Brian Musau, second, 23-41. I talked to Dave Smith about these guys a couple weeks ago. He's like, yeah, I'm not sure if I was going to run them. But basically, they're just he's like, they're so good, I have to run them, you know? Uh, so, and we saw that Dennis Kipengedich, this guy, I think he could be a top 10 guy at NCAA cross. I mean, look, well, at why wouldn't you run him? Well, I don't know if, you know, it's their first year transitioning to school and protect, preserve their eligibility. I don't know. He was, he was just, it wasn't certain, but clearly they belong on this level. Victor Shitsama for comparison, he was 31st at NCAAs for OK State, very consistent performer. He was fourth in this race in 2348. So he was 27 seconds behind Dennis Kipengedich. If you're 27 seconds ahead of someone who was 31st in NCAAs, you're doing some things right. So, And they, Oklahoma State should also be noted, they didn't run Alex Mayer, who is probably their best returner from this roster. So they're going to be very good. They should challenge NAU, uh, especially the, the addition of these two guys, Dennis and Brian. That's going to make them competitive. But we've seen a big influx of talent, I think, across the NCAA. Yeah, I feel like, Robert, it's kind of been a while since we've had a, a Kenyan champion. It used to be, for, you know, the 2010s, I feel like the NCAA was mostly dominated by Kenyan-born athletes. And 2022, Charles Hicks wins it. 2021 and 2020, Connor Mance. 2019 is the last time we saw a Kenyan champion, and that was Edwin Kurgat of Iowa State. 
But now we've got these two guys at Oklahoma State, and then we've got an Eritrean at New Mexico who might be the best guy in the NCAA. This was the weekend before last at Roy Griak, Habtom Samuel of New Mexico. He ran 23.36 there. That was the fastest time on that course since Lawi Lalang in 2011. It was faster than Mance and Wesley Kiptu ran a couple of years ago when they were the top of the NCAA. Habtom Samuel, his PB, 27.20 for 10,000 meters. Only one collegian has ever run that fast. That's Sam Chalanga, the NCAA record. This guy ran at the World Championships for Eritrea in 2022 and looks like he defected. He stuck around in the U.S. after that meet. This Why guy might go be... to Oklahoma State? Well, I mean, he's got his chance. He can go to any school he wants, pretty much, as long as they can get admitted. He's clearly a monster talent. He could be your NCAA favorite, Hebtim Samuel. I mean, 13-13, 27-20, and 23-36 at Roy Kriak. He's a sick, sick talent. That's my favorite. I just wish he'd gone to NC- Oklahoma State. I want to make sure NAU doesn't win this year. Why do you hate on them? I don't hate on them. They've done an amazing job. Watch Rome was born in Flagstaff. We take partial partial credit for their success, but it's just we need somebody new blood winning. And don't tell me all oh, this. Then you just recruit the talent. Oklahoma State got a huge tra- I mean, NAU got a huge transfer last year, right, John? That's why they won. Last year? They, well, they got George Kush. I think he'd been there the year before. NAU got another talent transfer this year. They got Aaron Los Harris from Wake Forest, who beat Kai Robinson at World Cross last year. I mean, NAU's... Look, I, all the I, top teams in the NCAA get transfers. Many of them get international students. This isn't... I mean, it's it's all within the rules. It's not like the, any team is cheating by getting a transfer or an international athlete. I've never understood why when you recruit an American, they say, oh, the coach developed the talent. And when you recruit a foreigner, it's called you imported the talent and you just bought it. That's the way the criticism goes in Let's Run. Admittedly, some of the times from overseas are better than the Americans. Oh, the, the other guy, we should give a shout out, Robert, too. It's Simeon Birnbaum really, ran really well at Bill Dellinger. But I think the best freshman performance of the weekend, Rocky Hansen, Wake Forest, true freshman. He was fifth at the Virginia Invitational. The only guys who beat him, all proven NCAA stars. Drew Bosley, Parker Wolf, Kai, Kai Robinson, and then Joey Noakes of BYU. To finish fifth in a field that good in your first collegiate race, super, super impressive stuff by Rocky Hansen. To do more research, I think my buddy that was all into Donovan Brazier when he was in high school was all into Rocky Hansen as well, but I'm not 100% on that. Well, I am getting excited. It, NCAA Cross, hopefully we'll have – I'm trying to talk to some coaches this week, and hopefully we'll have kind of a top 10, not really a season preview at this point, but you know, a, a look at who's going to be good and who are the athletes and teams to know this season. So – be working on that this week for the website. I'm very excited for NCAA Cross in November. Always one of my favorite meets in the year. It's in Virginia, which I don't think they've hosted since Dartmouth got second back in 86 or 87. So be fun to get it in a new course. Final thing I wanted to note before we end the podcast, Robert, have you been following these coaching changes in the sprint world? It seems like any good male sprinter the last week or two has changed their coaches. Marcel Jacobs, has left his coach, Paolo Camosi, as going to the U.S. to work with Raina Ryder. Fred Curley has dumped a link. Raina Ryder, who, who coached up Andre de Grasse, right? Used to coach Andre de Grasse. Currently coaches Trayvon Bromel. Used to coach Marvin Bracey, but Marvin Bracey has now gone to Dennis Mitchell. Fred Curley has left Elaine Francique and was with, is with Quincy Watts. It's just very interesting. And then also earlier in the year, we have Michael Norman, 
who has said he wanted to try to run the 100. He left Quincy Watts to join John Smith. So it's curious to me. I mean, I can, if you're Fred Curley or Marcel Jacobs, I, I can kind of understand. Like, Marcel Jacobs hasn't been able to stay healthy since the 2021 Olympics. Fred Curley went from world champion to not even making the final this year at Worlds and didn't appear to be injured. So it's kind of interesting to me that he would dump his coach after one bad year because he got silver at the Olympics in 21 and gold at Worlds in 22. But I don't know. What what do you make of these athletes and all these coaching shakeups just so close to the Olympics next year? Well, I think they're all different, but it's kind of interesting. Michael Norman thinks Quincy Watts can't coach, but Fred Curley thinks he can coach. So, Well, I don't think he I, thinks I think, he can't coach. I think he thinks he needed a change. Like Quincy, Quincy Watts coached Michael Norman to a 986 into world champion in the 400. I think it's just Michael Norman was not really, he was stagnating or he wasn't able to stay healthy. And that's why he left. I like the coaching changes. To me, it shows these guys are motivated and want to be great. I'm not sure that they're all necessarily smart. To me, Marcel Jacobs makes a lot of sense. This guy's was he, the reason why he picked up the hundred was he was injury prone. Although I guess you could say that the guy took him from long jump, no name to world one Olympic hundred meter champ. Don't you want to reward him? But I just, I don't know. Like to me in Tokyo, I thought Jacobs was the most obvious fraud ever. Now I'm a big fan of his. Now he's got a really good coach. who has got a proven track record in Rena Reiner. Now Rena Reiner, his personal life is what he's done in that. I mean, he didn't end up getting a ban from safe sport, but he's definitely involved sexually with people that he shouldn't have been involved with. Like coaches. And I know there's a lot of happily married coaches to ex athletes, but don't do that. Well, no, he was, he was cleared by safe sport because the athlete he was involved with was of legal age, but she was 18 and he was 20, 25 years older than her. So there was still clearly a power imbalance there. Well, I don't want to get into other prominent coaches that are married to people 20, 25 years of age. But yeah, when they're teenagers, wait till they're at least 25, just at a minimum. And my God, I don't even want to go off on this. But um, so Jacobs kind of makes sense to me, I guess. Curly, I don't know. They're just changing a lot. I thought it was weird that the, the coaching changes from the coaches themselves. So Paul Ehring, the UTEP coach, who coached the Olympic men's 800-meter champion, went to Texas A&M to coach their 800-meter runners. And the Texas A&M 800-meter coach, Milton Mallard, went to UTEP. Oh, did so they he? They just switched jobs. Yes, they just switched jobs. Milton Mallard, who coached the women's 800-meter yes. Olympic champion in 2021. So no longer coaches a thing, Mo, but that's interesting. Also, um, speaking of a thing, Mo, Brandon Miller, did you see what team he's joined, Robert? Because he's no longer with Formula Kersey or Nike. Yes. Yeah, he's with the Brooks Beat now, which I think... I mean, makes sense to me. They've got a good 800 crew. I think Danny Mackey's a good coach. And I look, we don't need to delve into people's personal lives, but it doesn't seem like he's with the thing Mo anymore. If they want to separate and think they'd do better in a separate arena, it would make sense to leave. No, I think it's good. The relationship ends. Get out of LA. Don't be just fresh start. Yeah, and he's, he's clearly a talent. Made the world's team last year when he was still in college for the US. You know, I... I absolutely can make the Olympic team this, this next year. So um, I expect good, big things from him in Seattle or Albuquerque. I guess they spend a bunch of time there. It is kind of interesting. He's, I'd say he's probably more, he's more of a speed based 800 guy, but you know, it's not like Isaiah Harris doesn't have speed either. So, all right, Robert, we do have a big race this upcoming weekend. 
the World Road Running Championships in Latvia. We'll preview that on the Friday 15, so I don't really want to dig into it that much right now, but I am excited for it. Jacob Kiplimo and Perez Jepchiachir are both defending their titles in the half marathon. Faith Kip Yegon's running the mile. There's We've now got the half marathon, road mile, and road 5K championships. The Ethiopian teams, they're sending a bunch of their studs in the 5K as well. So I think these races should be quite competitive. I think pretty fast in the shorter distances. I'm excited for it, but we'll kind of give our full preview and thoughts on Friday once we've looked through the fields more closely. Well, I'm pleased if Kaplima was healthy enough to run because he had to pull out of Worlds. No, this, this is a, a cool thing. This, they're trying to do something else. I used to really get excited for the World Half. Here there's so many races. It's kind of hard to figure out where I guess we'll have to do a good job in the next two or three days. You know, it's almost... I almost wish they could have... Oh, that would be hard to celebrate. Like, So we just, we're just we all focused on the half. But now we're going to be... Our, our focus is going to be crossed between these other things, but... I guess that means that Sam Tanner and um, no, not Sam Tanner. I just saw that the Drake Road Mile has been recognized as the world record holders. John, what is, those are who, Sam Pradel and Nikki Hiltz. Yeah, I made a joke. I said congrats to them for holding the world record for one week until it gets obliterated at the World Road Running Championships. And Nikki Hiltz is basically of the same opinion. This is what. They said, I think my favorite part about this is that in one week, I get to congratulate the GOAT, Faith Kip Yegon, for breaking my world record. Uh, crying, laughing emoji. So, yeah, good job. I think good job to Drake Relays for applying for these world records. You get some publicity. They're renaming that stretch of road like World Record Way or something. So they're capitalizing it by following all their procedures and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. But I do think that these records will get broken because it's only 427 and 401. I find it hard to believe that the winning time was not going to be significantly faster this weekend. That's one guy we got to call when we're looking into these bids. Blake Bolden, former Ivy League assistant coach like me, used to be at University of Penn. He's now the head of the Drake Relays to see if they wanted it. I know Des Moines has hosted USA's in the past and it was not packed. It was the crowds were very disappointing, but again, the trials would be different. So. All right. Well, if Weldon was around, I would ask him to preview Patriots, Cowboys. Our teams are squaring off on Sunday in Dallas, but well, actually in Arlington because the stadium's not in Dallas. But he's enjoying the end of his vacation. Robert, did he take his daughters to Tuscany, or are they doing a, a parents-only trip? Parents-only trip. That makes sense to me. I feel like. The kids probably too young to totally appreciate Tuscany. You can have more fun there, just the adults. So probably probably much needed actually dealing with two daughters at home. They come back, they miss them a lot, they get to see them. But yeah. I hope that Weldon and his wife had a had a nice time out there. Baby Cece, if you're listening to the weekly podcast at age three, Uncle Robert's here for you if you need me. I guess I shouldn't call her baby Cece since she now has a younger sister. All right, until Friday.